Okay, so Ephesians 5, it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we're members of his body. Um, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Good evening, everybody. My name is Fran. Um, doctors can be very, very stupid at times. I just got back from a trip to the Philippines, and we were going to deal with issues of trauma and abuse, and I wanted to illustrate a PowerPoint about some sad women you know, who are hurting really bad. Don't ever Google hurting Filipino women. Doctors do stupid things sometimes. You don't want to know what was there. So let's get on to... Tonight, and I had the passage read all at once, almost for the shock value. If you're familiar with it, you probably don't like it. If you're not familiar with it, you're probably saying, what the F did I sign up for? And it is a difficult one. But as Tina was praying with us earlier, thank goodness we're a church that doesn't shy away from the hard scriptures because we know we serve a loving God. So let's figure this out. I want to start with a story. It's fictional. It's a composite. Um, but put on your little dog collars because you will be the pastor this couple is going to come to with their problem. Greg and Jill, we'll call them, met in college, got married right after. She was a um, primary school teacher, and he was headed for med school. And she knew that it was going to be a rough few years there's no way they could have kids. She'd have to work. They had to move across the country for med school. And toward the end of it, Greg said, I really need to do a residency. <sighs> okay. Three more years. All right. So they had to move again. They compromised. They had a baby right at the end of the three years. By the time the two of them graduated, because she went on and got her master's in public school administration, he did his residency. They were over $200,000 in debt. So they decided what they would do is sign up for one of these government-sponsored debt forgiveness programs where they send you to an area of deprivation. And they wound up, for the next five years, two hours east of Flagstaff on a Navajo reservation. Greg would tell you that the work was exhilarating and ridiculous, rewarding, and so hard and exhausting. Um, Jill was really 
pleased that obviously teachers were in high demand. Nobody wanted to be there. So she got a good job. Her parents actually relocated to Flagstaff to be near them. They found these two little old retired ladies, they call them the abuelas, to take care of the baby. And things were going okay until another accidental pregnancy and twins. So now three kids, minimal stipend, debt repayment, middle of nowhere. Coming up on the end of their fifth year, and Greg says, I have been invited to apply for positions at a couple big-name university teaching hospitals. This is our ticket out of here. And Jill said, I don't want to leave. He's like, what? are you kidding? Um, kids' education, culture, um, we could get a second car and you wouldn't have to drive 20 miles to a supermarket. we got to get out of here. And Jill said, my parents relocated here to be near us. Two years from now, I'm going to be the principal of the school when the principal retires. Our kids will get a good education. These people here need us. This is my calling. I'm not leaving. Okay, you got your pastor's hat on, huh? Because they're sitting in your office. That is my introduction to this ludicrously difficult passage in Ephesians 5. But let's back up a bit and remember where we've come from. Up to this point, Ephesians has been about our identity in Christ and our behavior as a community, the body of Christ, the church. Um, Last week, in two weeks, we've been covering this idea where the main phrase in the previous passage is the command to be filled with the Spirit. And this is where the grammar gets fun, because all these other things are examples of ways of being filled with the Spirit. Speaking, singing, making, giving thanks, and submitting yourself. Submitting yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ. This submitting yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ is verse 21 of chapter 5. And it's a bridge. It's going to take us from this section about dealing with the entire church community, and Paul's now going to hone in and talk about some very specific family relationships. So we'll be covering them for the next several weeks. And he needed to cover these. Oops. Well, he needed to talk about family because family back then in the day in Ephesus, third largest city in the Roman Empire, Family was the basic social unit. You needed a loan. You didn't go to the bank. You went to your family. If you were hungry, you went to the family, crops. You needed a place to stay. You stayed with family, extended family, multiple generations in the family, servants included in the family. Um, You needed any sort of social welfare. Your family better provide it. You could not depend on the government or the schools. You could not depend on your career, maybe, but maybe not your friends. Family was the central unit. So Paul needed to talk about family, because if the family wasn't functioning well, there'd be social chaos. You depended on family. And in, in first century Rome, there was some social chaos going on. 
There was a women's lib movement going on. Maybe the first of its kind. Um, the 70s had nothing on this one. Women's roles were changing, and they were getting into government. They were getting themselves educated. They were taking jobs. Some of them with this new freedom and responsibility, to be frank, were being pretty bitchy in their exercise of their leadership. The goddess cults were getting to be very trendy. You had Artemis, the goddess of fertility and destiny for women. You had Isis, the goddess of equal opportunity for women. And you had the great mother goddess, who is known as the seducer and destroyer of men. And you know, I mean, we know religion gone amok can be dangerous. And these goddess cults, goddess religions, were starting to wreak a little bit of havoc in society in Roman Empire. And some of the women were refusing to marry. Well, you were expected to because otherwise the family had to support you. This was part of the program, get married. Or they were refusing to have kids, which basically in an age with not very much birth control meant they were refusing sex with their husbands. And this was not going down well. So the, the society and the culture that Paul is writing in to the Ephesians in Ephesus is in a bit of a crisis between traditional authoritarian male-led society and this sudden, out-of-control wildfire of women's liberation. They weren't handling it in an orderly fashion. And everybody's looking at the Christians because, you know, you got to have a scapegoat. So let's take the minority group, the Christians, and let's see what they have to say about this because we think they're a little perverted and subversive already. They don't like worshiping the the emperor. They talk about eating the body and blood of their savior. I mean, how bizarre is that? And they're always talking about love and freedom for women and for slaves. So what do you have to say about this? And Paul comes out with a third way. Be filled with the Spirit. That's the ground for ordering your relationships rightly. And submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Very countercultural. Believe me, there was not a lot of talk about husbands, fathers, or slave owners submitting to one another. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. To the Lord, to the Lord, to Christ, to Christ. I will bet the majority of us hone in on that word submit and say, you got to be kidding, and miss How many times in this passage Paul talks about to Christ, as in Christ, as Christ did, to the Lord. And that's that's really what I want us to look at tonight. That word submit, anyhow, okay, Greek lesson for the night. It is not the same word as obey. Different words. No obedience here. I have no idea where love, honor, and obey came from. You will not find it in scripture. You will not find it there. It means 
to arrange under, to fit rightly. And the image that came to my mind was, have you seen any of those um, little videos about trying to get your toddler in a car seat? They're arching their back. They're clinging to you. They're grasping onto the side. There is no way they're going to bend to fit rightly into that car seat. They are not going to submit. And that's the meaning of the word here. Arrange yourself to fit rightly. Deference. Putting the other one first. Aligning yourself with what is going to be best, safest, and most beneficial, not just to yourself, but to those around you. It's really different in connotation from what we think about today. So you've got to put the 21st century out of your mind because it's not fair to impose that on scripture that was written in the first century. Back then, it was get yourself in order to fit comfortably in to relationships. Submit to one another. It's, an, it's not a command here, even though it looks like it. The, submit yourselves in verse 22 is what's called in Greek middle voice. Now, the closest I can come to think, how, anybody study Spanish and get far enough to do reflexive verbs? One or two. It's the idea that, <laughs> okay, so that's one or two more than if I said Greek. Um, it's this idea of you do it to yourself voluntarily. It's like me baño, I bathe myself. Ain't nobody else bathing me. Me divierto, I entertain myself. Me ponga, I put it on myself. Nobody else is dressing me. And here, it's submit yourself. It's not a command. No one else is going to do it to you or for you. Do it for yourself. So it's got to be voluntary. That's one of the most important things that we get out of these first few verses. It's voluntary, wives, that you submit, order yourself, fit rightly in with your husband as you do with the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. The church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. When we, when we look at it this way, when we take it off our 21st century selves and put it in terms of as to the Lord, well, I know we struggle with it, but we're a lot more willing to say, Okay, Lord, your will, your way. And if we could carry that attitude into other relationships of deference, putting the other first, submitting one to another, and wives even to your husbands. But it's not, it's not a command that someone can make you do. It's your view of Christ and relationship to him that will help you assess what your relationship should be with your husband. And this idea of um, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Yeah, I know, that has been terribly abused, that verse. But again, thinking about it as to Christ, the, as the church submits to Christ, I can't 
I mean, you know how hypocritical it would be for a church to pray, Lord, have your will. We are yours, except for your, except for finances. We're going to handle those ourselves. Thank you. Or if the church were to pray, Lord, we seek your will. As long as you don't bring those particular people to our churches, we don't want anything to do with them. I mean, you see what the hypocrisy would be if the church didn't submit to Christ in everything. And I believe what Paul is talking about here is wives, don't keep secrets, don't hold back, don't be, be transparent, be upfront. Not, um, it, it's an attitude that comes out of character. It's not just an occasional superficial behavior. Well, okay, I'll let you see that much, but the rest of it's keeping, keeping to myself. As the church submits and gives everything to Christ, a wife should be open in her relationship with her husband. You can't get away from this all-encompassing sense that it's about Christ, the constant back and forth of husband, wife, Christ, church, husband, wife, Christ, church. Paul's doing two things here, and we're pretty happy about taking the Christ and the church part, but our culture and the abuses of this passage and people who have misused it make us so hesitant to agree to look at this and say husbands, wives in the same way as Christ to his church. And we lose so much. I can't imagine us standing in front of Christ. Well, I can, but it's harder to imagine mouthing off to Christ, being insolent to Christ, demeaning him, wheedling him, manipulating him, thinking that we can get away with something, trying to do an end run around Christ. So why do we do that in marriage, ladies? Why aren't we up front in front of our spouses the way we would want to be in front of Christ? Now, are there limits to this whole submission thing? Yes. Yes. This passage doesn't talk about them. There are most definitely other passages in Scripture that talk about protecting yourself in situations of abuse not doing anything immoral or illegal just because someone in authority has told you to. It's just not here in this passage. But I want to assure you, assure you that if you've heard anyone ever say, you have to stay in that situation because, you know, you you signed a marriage vow and you just have to go home and submit, that is bullshit. Let's call it out right now. But at the same time, our attitude is to be that of Christ. Not vengeful, not hateful, not spiteful. But no, this does not say under any and all circumstances, you have to put up with abuse. And that goes both ways for husbands and wives. And if this, if this sermon is triggering you, please talk to someone about it. After, And I hope that even more than the degree of your trigger is the degree of healing you feel in realizing that this whole passage centers around Christ and our relationship to him. Now, you would think that if wives are told to submit, husbands would be told to rule. Wrong. Husbands 
love your wives. That's the command, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word to present himself to himself a radiant church without wrinkle or stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. Now, there were plenty of how-to manuals on marriage and family relationships back then. They were called household codes. But I can tell you, precious few, if any of them, included the command for husbands to love their wives. Now, you'd want to take care of your wife because she was a pretty, pretty expensive investment. You'd paid a dowry, and she was supposed to be the mother of your children. So you had to take care of her, and you had to kind of protect her. But no one ever mentioned love. Christianity actually elevated the status of women out, out, through the ceiling compared to other world religions or cultures of its day. Elevated women to being fully human, not just a possession or a responsibility, but someone with whom you should enjoy an intimate and complete relationship. Husbands, love your wives. First reason of two given is because Christ loved the church. He loves the church. He gives himself for the church. He makes the church holy, cleanses the church, and presents the church to himself. Now, Christ died for us once, but he puts up with us every day. And that, to me, is the second miracle. Christ did not call us to be his business partners or club or fraternity or a corporation or PR people. He called us his body. How intimate is that? That is the degree of his love. He calls us his bride, another bridge between Christ and the church and the husband and wife. He loves the church, and a husband should love the wife. He gave himself for her, the church, sacrificial, self-denying. Husbands will make sacrifices of time and resources. Think of Greg and Jill. They'll give up self-gratification. Husbands giving themselves for their wives will anticipate and initiate to meet needs and discover the core of problems. Christ makes the church holy, sets her apart, and obviously in the marriage relationship there should be a very, very unique fidelity between husband and wife. But also, I believe in a marriage, each should give the other the best. You know, you don't give it all at work and come home exhausted and veg out. You've got to save some so that your best is available for your spouse, husbands, for your wife. Is your wife getting the best of your attention and interest and resources? By setting her apart, are you actually giving her the time and the resources and the wherewithal to become more 
like Christ, to nurture her abilities and her character. Christ cleanses the church through water and his word. Christ gives us both an awareness of our sin and the means of forgiveness of our sin. Husbands, you have an invaluable role to play in helping your wives be cleansed from past hurts, past sins, mistrust, broken hearts. In the marriage relationship, like, you know, Jesse was talking earlier about baptism. It doesn't, doesn't save you, but it declares you are clean, you are united to Christ, your allegiance is in Christ. And in marriage, there is a there is this incredible sense of be- there should be an incredible sense of belonging and security. And no matter what I do, no matter what I've done, I am safe in this relationship. And if I mess up, I will be ever so gently supported and led and helped by my husband. If Unless you're really screwing up, it is to your advantage, guys, to treat your wife this way, to build her up so that she becomes more godly because she should love you more and better if she is more godly. Now, as I said, if you're totally screwing up and she becomes godly, she may call you out, but that's different. Christ presents the church to himself. He claims the church as his own. When he looks at us, forgiven believers, even as we continue to stumble along individually and corporately in the body of the church, he sees beauty, purity. He looks at us and sees how much he loves us. And this, this is the call to husbands and wives. Your love isn't conditional on her weight, on her age, on her beauty, on her educational level, on her hormones. Your love is to be unconditional. Claim her. She is your own. And so that's how Paul first explains around the idea of husbands, this radical idea. You are to love your wives as Christ. As Christ. I don't know. Maybe they needed a second way. One wasn't enough. So he talks also about loving your wife as you love your body. Let me just hang on. I got to cheat for a second here. No. Now, given basic mental health, we do love our bodies. We feed our bodies. We protect our bodies. If our bodies are injured, We do what we can to heal our bodies. We maintain rest. We maintain health. We give good things to our body. We challenge our bodies. Just as Christ does for the church and the husband is to do for the wife. Feed her. Protect her. If she's injured, help her heal. Nurture her. Put things before her that will help her grow. We, we tend to care for our bodies. And Paul says this is similar 
to the way a husband is to care for the wife. Christ does not come down on his church with a heavy hand of judgment for every mistake we make. Or we wouldn't be sitting here. We'd all be smoke and ashes right now. He meets us in our sins and in our stupidity and in our insolence and in our times of just ignoring him. He continues to meet us with grace and forgiveness, grace and forgiveness, opportunity through the spirit, grace, all that. So what do you think is supposed to happen in the marriage when she's just in a stage of ignoring you or being mouthy or doing something stupid? Grace, forgiveness, spiritual resources for growth and improvement. Verse 31 here is quoting Genesis chapter 2. It's often read out at weddings. And it, again, it's just reinforcing one more time the unity between husband and wife. When one hurts, the other hurts. When one rejoices, the other rejoices. It's not a competitive relationship. I know it's corny. It can't be 50-50. Yeah, it has to be 100-100. That's the corny part. But uh, when marriage partners can't agree, when they cannot be united, and most of Ephesians is about unity in the church and now in the goal of the relationship. Let them come to Christ. Let them remember Christ and the church. When the situation just doesn't seem salvageable or solvable, what would Christ do? What has he already shown he does in his love for the church? If I were talking to Christ, would I use that tone of voice? This is a profound mystery. Oh, yeah. you got to be kidding. Does this stuff really work? It is. It's a mystery that has been resolved. It's a mystery that has the assurance that Christ and the Holy Spirit are 100% behind us, invested in making marriages work. Ladies, it's a mystery. Can you grasp the idea of voluntarily, in an attitude and actions, deferring, putting your husband first, fitting in rightly? Husbands, can you imagine sacrificing for your wife the way Christ sacrifices for the church, died for her, yeah, took a bullet, so to speak, but lives every every, every day continually renewing the grace and love. It's, It's not a question of if this will work. The mystery is, and if you put it to the test, how is it going to work? I, but most of us are like skeptical. So let me tell you another story. This one's not fiction. Look at those two young lovebirds. Are they hot or what? You can see little baby Beth down there. So we're talking 1986, 1987 now. True story. 
And uh, don't repeat it at seminary because Craig uses this as a case study almost every year with fake names. So 1986, we are living in Cambridge, England. I have secured a two-year degree in nursing, and I have applied for a nursing license while we're in England. Um, we have been told we can't have kids. Okay, well, we, we can live with that. More freedom, more funds for us. But neither of us wanted to go back at the end of this one-year stint in Cambridge. We did not want to go back to South Florida where Craig had been working. So he was applying for jobs. And he was shortlisted and ready to be interviewed at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland and London School of Theology. Not shoddy places. Before the interviews came up, I had to go down to London to interview regarding the nursing license, and I was told I wouldn't get it. My credentials, no way, would transfer. If I wanted to do nursing in the UK, I would have to do a complete new three-year degree. And by the way, they had such a glut of applicants, there was no time in the foreseeable future they could see me getting a place to study. So that was out. So I go back to Cambridge. And I have never felt so transparent, so vulnerable, and so small in saying to Craig, if we stay here and I can't follow my calling and I can't have kids, I will likely become so bitter, I bring this marriage down and your career with it. So he canceled the interviews, gave up the opportunities. His friends thought he was nuts. Just because your wife wants a job? Man, this is your career. You're going places. This is high-powered. Nope. I'm supposed to love my wife. As Christ loved the church. Well, that's how we wound up in Denver. Not a shoddy job either. But I have never felt so vulnerable in putting everything out on the table like that. And never to this day have I doubted that man's love because he gave it up for me once. And I'm sure he would do it again. So it's a mystery. It's a mystery, not if it will work, but how it's going to work. And it's a scary mystery. Every year, Craig will have one Yahoo say, well, of course, the guy ought to just take the job because, you know, the man is the head of the household. And some, somebody else will say, well, her rights have to be respected and her feelings. And I mean, they're both missing the point because they're both looking at contemporary culture. And Paul, remember, wasn't going to be swayed by either side of the argument. Not the traditional hierarchical way, of first century Ephesus and not the new unbridled independence and liberation of the women there. The third way modeled on the relationship of Christ and the church. And all of this in the larger context of be filled with the spirit. That's heavy. But it's nothing to be afraid of. 
because a good and perfect God has given us his word and his spirit is in us to work out the mystery. We are going to have people in the prayer cave later on. If you want someone to pray with you, it doesn't have to be about this, be about anything. But maybe there are relationships that you just, you're just stymied in and you don't know how, how they can ever be reconciled. It's a good time to pray about that. Maybe you've been hurt by someone and you, you can't imagine what it means to carry an attitude of graciousness after what has happened to you. It's a good time to pray about something like that. Um, when we go into communion now, we're going to be serving each other. So whoever happens upon it first, serve the next person. Both baptism and communion. We're told by Christ to be things that we should repeat. Communion to celebrate that the bread or the gluten-free crackers, are symbolic of his body and the sacrifice. It was broken for us. The juice that we use here, not wine, is symbolic of his blood that was shed for us. Incredible sacrifice to win our salvation so that we can have the Holy Spirit, so that we can live day by day figuring out the rest of this Christ-like life in a world gone mad. So I would invite us to, cons- to come now to communion. If you're, if you're facing toward Jesus, if you're a mile away, but you're thinking of him, celebrate with us in receiving his body and blood. Pray with someone in the prayer cave, if that's what you want to do. Worship in song with the worship team. Peace out in your seats if that's what you need right now. Let's pray. Father, it's, we read words like this and it seems impossible in today's day and age. Did you really mean for this to be relevant now? And then we remember that you are 100% consistent and good and just. And we take heart that the struggle is worth it, that the mystery is worth unraveling, that it is worth learning how to submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for you. Father, thank you for this celebration of communion now, all that it means to us. Thanks that it's something that we can do with every other Christian in the world and through all time. Be with us and help us now to be the kind of body that supports one another, nudges one another on, and really helps each other understand more of what it is to be like you. Amen.